2 Corinthians 1 verse 12. Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in our relations with you with integrity and godly sincerity. We have done so relying not on worldly wisdom but on God's grace. For we do not write you anything you cannot read or understand. And I hope that as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand fully that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of Lord Jesus. Because I was confident of this, I wanted to visit you first so that you might benefit twice. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and then to have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I fickle when I intended to do this? Or do I make my plans in a worldly manner, so that in the same breath I say both yes, yes, and no, no? But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him... The Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. I call God as my witness and I stake my life on it, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy because it is by faith you stand firm. So I made up my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you. For if I grieve you, who is left to make me glad but you whom I have grieved? I wrote as I did, so that when I came I would not be distressed by those who should have made me rejoice. I had confidence in all of you, that you would all share my joy. For I wrote you out of great distress and anguish of heart, and with many tears not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him, so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. 
Thank you, Sherry. Morning, folks. Great to have you along. If you're new or visiting, a special welcome to you. Um, my name's Tim. I'm one of the pastors here at Wagga Evangelical Church. It is a special time for the youth church to head out with Darcy and Simon. Thanks, guys. You can make your way out. Um, thanks, Sherry, for reading that passage. As always, there's lots more in there than we, we've ever got time to really dig into, but let's stop and, and pray that God would help us to uh, see and hold what is true and drop what is false. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we just thank you that you have created us uh, creaturely. You've given us senses that we might experience your world. And right now we ask that you would redeem our senses, um, that we might see you more clearly, that we might feel you more tangibly, that we might smell the aroma of Christ and taste and see that the Lord is good, and that you might be doing this in us for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It is actually a pretty cool thing to, to think about um, the senses and how we interact with the world. Did I miss a sense, by the way? Did I get all five? I can't remember. Anyways, we've been given lots of senses, but one of the ones I really do like is the sense of smell. And as Mike mentioned, the power of the sense of smell is so amazing. Just think about how smell impacts you, affects you in your mood, in your outlook, even in your memory. I mean, I think about it, one of the things that I anticipate when we go on holidays is who gets, who's the first one to smell the salt air, the ocean breeze? You know that really distinct sniff? It's magnificent, isn't it? Or the, the, the smell of spring flowers around about this time. You know, that magnificent sweet aroma when uh, the, the first roses bloom. Maybe for you that's not a good thing. Maybe you're a pollen, um, you know, adverse, you know, the poor old hay fever. Same smell, different reaction, Yeah. But one of the things I really find fascinating about smell is that that memory link that Mike was talking about and the visceral, the bodily experience it can evoke, even eliciting powerful reactions to memories years and years and years ago. Here's a couple that really, really bring it home for me. The smell of the milk and honey palm olive body wash. I can't help but smell that now and remember becoming a parent. That was the soap that we were using at the time that Tiana had Grace. I remember in the hospital when Tiana, just after having Grace, washing and helping Tiana sort of bathe and that smell. And when I smell that soap now, it just takes me back to that moment. It just immediately transforms me or transports me to 11 years ago. Smell has that capacity, doesn't it? Or this other smell, the smell of curry leaves and chili frying in coconut oil. I'm not sure if you've ever experienced that. That is a winner, in my opinion. And it takes me to a particular space in Sri Lanka. That smell is everywhere. The smell of coconut oil and frying up, you know, often mustard seeds with chili and curry leaves. Magnificent smell. Or what about this one? This is a weird one. And I only realized this, and it was a couple of years back, I smelt this smell. It was a combination of Elizabeth Taylor's White Diamonds perfume and cigarette smoke. And it took me back... 36 years to when my mum was a waitress in a Chinese restaurant. She used to wear that perfume and she's not a smoker, but she would come home because in those days you used to smoke in the restaurant. And that combination took me back when I smelled it on someone. I was there, I was five years old, six years old again. It's amazing how powerful the sense of smell is. And as Mike mentioned, how does this relate to the passage today? Well, well, in this section of Paul's letter, he will directly talk about the sense of smell. He'll talk more specifically about one aroma, the aroma of Christ. And though it's one aroma, it has or it produces two distinct responses in the smellers. I'm not sure if that's a word, but let's go with it. 
Chapter 2, verse 16, the fragrance of Christ is the fragrance of life leading to life or the fragrance of death leading to death. We're going to come back to that and talk more about it uh, a little bit later on. But, but in essence, pun counters, there's one. In essence, this whole section has got to do with Paul's relationships to the Corinthians and their sense of smell. What I mean by that is last week we looked at the opening of the letter. We saw that the relationship between Paul and the Corinthians has been somewhat checkered over years. Uh, Paul planted the church somewhere around about 50 AD-ish. He spent some time establishing the Christians there. And after leaving them to preach the gospel and break new ground in other providences in the area, he heard that things were going south. They weren't going so good in the Corinthian church. And so he wrote them a couple of letters. He even made a painful visit to them. You heard Cherry read it in chapter 2 verse 1. And yet still their relationship had not yet fully been restored. The Corinthian church and the Christians at Corinth are still a little bit down on Paul. As I said, in essence, they think they smell a rat in Paul, not the fragrance of a trusted friend. And so in this section that we read today, Paul defends both the sincerity of his love and his concern for the Corinthian church, as well as gives them, as well as giving them a lesson in Christian aromacology. I had to look that word up. It's the study in science of smell. Okay. And what we find is that the fragrance or the aroma of genuine Christian friendship, it's actually more pungent than you might imagine, and it's sharper than you'd expect. And so I do want to look at this section under answering one question under four sort of headings. Have a look at it there. It's in your outline. It's what does Christian friendship smell like? There's four distinct things we see from the text. Let me just run them through for you quickly and then let's unpack them one by one. What does Christian friendship smell like? It smells like transparency. It smells like sincere care. It smells like forgiveness. And it smells like Christ. So what does a true friend smell like? Let's do the first thing first. The first thing Paul puts forward is it smells like transparency. Now, hopefully it's obvious to you. Let me make it abundantly clear. I'm using smell metaphorically here in the same way Paul is. Uh, it's, you know, it's the characteristics of Christian friendship. Don't literally go sniffing people at the end of the service. That's just weird. You know? you know, you've got to make this apparent sometimes. So the first fragrance of Christian friendship, it's transparency. Where do we see it in the text? Well, basically, it's the whole back half of chapter 1 from verses 12 to 23. These verses are literally, they're littered with Paul underlining and defending the transparency of his relationship with those in Corinth. Look at a couple of examples with me. Have a look there at chapter 1, verse 12. What does he say? He says, Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially in relation to you with integrity and godly sincerity. You hear Paul starting this this section? It it smacks to me of someone who's desperate to be heard and understood, not muted and misunderstood. I I sort of imagine him writing this with that tone or that look in his eye of of a child when they've been accused of something they didn't do. Do you know that look? You know that look of a truly innocent child? There's a look of horror. There's a look of urgency, of desperation. I what? No, what? You know the look? You know the sound in their voice? Desperate to be cleared. That's how I imagine Paul is writing this bit. Desperate to be heard, desperate to be understood, desperate not to be misunderstood. But of course, immediately you've got to, you've got to reconcile with the fact that there are some people who are good liars. <laughs> 
Some people have managed to hone the skill of false horror. Some kids are even pretty adept at doing this. Sometimes tears are the sign of fear or grief at getting caught out rather than sincerity or innocence. So how do we know that Paul isn't doing that here? How do we know that with the Corinthians, it's not Paul with the old fingers crossed behind the back routine? Oh, really? I'm not so fair. Well, I think we can know that with clarity because immediately he backs up his claim with evidence. That is, he doesn't just rely on the sound of a wounded surprise or a pained expression. Instead, he immediately points to the evidence of his transparency and all his dealings with the Corinthians. Look at some of the examples he gives. Look at verse 13, for example. He says, For we did not write to you, we do not write to you anything you cannot read or understand. That is, he's never spoken or written to them riddles about the gospel. It's all been high and clear. There's no fine print. There's no hidden clauses. Essentially, Paul's saying, I've been transparent about everything. Check out my letters. It's there in writing. But it's not just in teaching terms among them that he's been transparent. He's been transparent about his plans as well in terms of his relationship. I'm not sure if you picked it up when Sherry read it out there, but there appears to be some gripe between them that Paul hasn't kept his word on visiting them when he said he would. Did you notice that when it was read through? Did you notice that there's that, that uh, in verse 17 he's saying, he's sort of answering a charge. Was I fickle with my plans, asks Paul? Was I saying yes, yes and no, no? You know, essentially saying yes with my words and shaking my head at the same time. You know, you know what that looks like, by the way? I love this about Australia. We've got these little slang terms for this. Do you know the slang term for that? Yeah, it's a newy, but it's a beauty. It's the old yeah, nah routine. Okay? It's like the Corinthians invited Paul over for Barbie and Paul's bunged out the old yeah, nah. You know? Anyone use that, by the way? I think it's classic. Yeah, nah. Which is it? Therein lies the genius. <laughs> <laughs> can you help me move on Sunday yeah nah <laughs> is that what he's doing here no no Paul's not being fickle when he's changed his plans to visit he wasn't pulling the old yeah nah lever no verse 15 and 16 he makes it plain again that his intention to visit was uh his sorry his change in intention to visit was genuine in fact he actually uses to reinforce his transparency transparency even more in fact did you notice he effectively outlines that part of his intention when he was going to visit them was to raise some money from them that's what he said that's what he means when he says at the end of verse 16 that he wanted to have them send him on his way back to judea essentially he's saying part of my intention in visiting you was to raise some financial assistance from you likely for his own travels and likely for the growing number of poor persecuted Christians in Jerusalem. In other words, he's going over and above in terms of his transparency. It wasn't just a, I was just going to come to serve you. No, I want you to help me. (laughs) That's why I was coming. Don't get me wrong. He's actually increasing his transparency, being very open about his plan. So why did they change? If that was his intention, why did they change? Well, it's because of the second fragrance of Christian friendship that we see in this section. Because not only is Paul being transparent in his teaching and his plans with the Corinthian church, he's also sincere in his care for them. That's the second smell that he's giving off here. The Corinthians have wrongly labelled him fickle when his plans changed, but he's saying, no, 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 that's the cologne of care. You know I love alliteration. There's going to be lots more of those. 
Look at this in verse 23, in fact. Have a look at uh, chapter 123. Paul makes this very, very bold statement, I hope you realise. He says, I call God as my witness, and I stake my life on it, that it was in order to spare you that I did not return to Corinth. Skip down to chapter 2, verse 1. He says, So I made my mind that I would not make another painful visit to you, for if I grieve you, who is left, left to make me glad? Skip again to verse 4. For I wrote to you out of great distress and anguish of heart with many tears, not to grieve you, but to let you know the depth of my love for you. I want you to notice how strong a claim Paul is making here. Staking his life, calling God as a witness. Uh, He's evoking the the, the highest standards to underline the sincerity of his care and his concern for the Corinthians. Even as his plans change, in fact, it's why his plans change. It wasn't that he was trying to hurt or disrespect or disregard them in not visiting, but he was trying to spare them unnecessary hurt. He was attempting to get the timing right. That's why he didn't just ignore them altogether. Instead, Instead, he wrote another letter to them. And it wasn't just a letter of the airing of grievances. It was a hard letter. We get the sense that it likely included some hard words on hard topics and issues. But notice it was written with tears of sincere care and concern dripping down Paul's cheeks. It was coming from a place of deep love and deep affection for them. Friends, these are the first two fragrances of genuine Christian friendship, I want to say. It's transparency and sincere care. Now, I just want to stop at this point here. I want us to see the implications for us here today because already there are some real and raw and important principles to notice in this section that ought, well, they will and they ought, have an impact on anyone here who's trying to live as a Christian, to be a follower of Christ. And the first implication is... Sometimes relationships between Christians will go through rocky patches. Did you notice that? Don't be naive to that reality. Unity in Jesus, adoption to God's family through faith by grace, that does not automatically guarantee that you'll have no disagreements or rough spots in your relationships with Christian brothers and sisters on this side of eternity. If you haven't already experienced Christian conflict, I don't want to be the doomsday prophet, but the likelihood is that you will at some point. In fact, I want to say it's often in the family context, and you will know this by experience, it's in the family context that conflicts rage the fiercest and have the potential for most hurt, isn't it? It's because of the deep, lasting connection of familial relationships that the conflict is felt so real, so hard, so uncomfortable and I want to say that is the reality of Christian unity so Christian conflict it is hard but the second implication is that as brothers and sisters united by Christ adopted into God's family by grace through faith how you deal with the rough patches how you deal and work through disagreements in relationships with your Christian brothers and sisters, because of the deep connection, because you're a Christian, it must be different. And like Paul is stating here, it must be focused on the pheromones of genuine friendship, transparency and sincere care for the other. 
Now, I just want to sort of illustrate this a little bit more practically and plainly. I want you to think about how countercultural those qualities are, transparency and sincere care expressed, how countercultural they are in sort of secular conflicts. I mean, in fact, just, just think of your own conflicts that you've been involved in, whether as the victim or the perpetrator. In likelihood, you've probably been a little bit of both. Rarely is it different. But think about how often is full transparency either the aim or the result of conflicts? And how often is the opposite of transparency, that is ambiguity or obscurity or secrecy, even cunning, both the aim and the result of conflict? Or how often is the sincere care for the other party in the conflict your first priority? Over and above the protection or the validation of your own hurt or difficulty. How often is that the case? I mean, I can't help but thinking of um, you know, high-profile examples, politicians, public personalities caught up in some kind of scandal where a very simple question is asked and yet a very convoluted answer is given. So ambiguous to be anything but transparent because to be transparent might mean owning some of the guilt or the fault or even the unintentional hurt. I mean, you know how this sounds. Think of the courtroom scene. Think of the courtroom trial. Question, doctor, did patient X die as a direct result of you prescribing the wrong medication? Answer, well, patient X experienced what we would term a negative patient care outcome, but not as a direct result of me writing the prescription. No, 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 no. More specifically and significantly, it was a result of her ingesting the poison by which she did of her own hand. You know what I mean? I mean, it's, it's an obviously contrived example, but have you ever given that kind of answer in a conflict situation? Ever tried to evade responsibility rather than own it? Ever attempted to sort of blur the motives or even the outcomes rather than acknowledge them? Ever been more concerned to lessen the personal ramifications for yourself from the conflict, even at the expense of expressing right care and concern for the other? I think that's our natural reaction as humans, by the way. I think self-preservation is a reflex in most cases. But though it may be our natural reflex as humans, it must not be our continued reflex as Christians. Transparency and the sincerity of care must be the primary way we deal with conflicts. Even when that means accepting fault or admitting guilt or even acknowledging unintentional hurt or harm caused by our actions or inactions, be they large or small. And there's a reason for this, folks. There's a reason that we ought to be able to be transparent and caring in conflict, even when we're at fault. It's because of the third fragrance of genuine Christian friendship. It's forgiveness. I want you to see how Paul strings these things together in the text. You know, we've highlighted it at nauseam and we'll continue to do so. Clearly, there's some conflict in a relationship between Paul and the Corinthians. And yet his willingness to be transparent about, just transparent about this, this difficulty is rooted in his sincere care for them and because he knows and understands the value and the power of forgiveness made available through Jesus. Look at this in chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. I'm not going to read out that section in its entirety, but it speaks here about forgiveness, about an issue with a man in their congregation. And Paul speaks about the necessity of genuine forgiveness being sought 
and extended and received. Not because hurt and sin and wrongdoing is rare in Christian relationships, but precisely because it's common that he underlines this. Now again, I don't think I'm going to have to convince anyone of this here, whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian yet. I don't think I'm going to need to convince you that Christians have the capacity to hurt and wrong and mistreat others, sometimes ignorantly, sometimes carelessly, sometimes indirectly, sometimes with intent. (laughs) I mean, I've certainly been guilty of wrongdoing against brothers and sisters on each of those fronts. I don't think you'll be different. And I've been guilty on those fronts more often than I'd like to admit, but I can admit it because the fragrance of forgiveness that ought be present among fractious Christians is real in Christ because it's first been extended and received to us through Jesus. That is a marvel, folks, that you must not miss. Have a look at it there in chapter 2, verse 10. Paul says, Anyone you forgive, I forgive also. And what I've forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. In order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. The fragrance of forgiveness is so unique and rare and excellent. And there's two things I want you to notice here from that little section. Have a look at that first one. The first, forgiveness is made possible in the sight of Christ. That is because Jesus has first forgiven the unforgivable and excused the inexcusable in us, Christians now have not just the ability but the obligation to do likewise, to adopt a willingness to excuse the otherwise inexcusable. Make no mistake, that's what forgiveness means. When you ask for mercy, when you ask for forgiveness, you're asking someone to overlook that which ought not be overlooked otherwise. Excuse that which is inexcusable. Forgive that which is unforgivable. That's what it is. That's what Christ has done for us. The second thing to notice, and it's super important here, the reason for this forgiveness is made, again, paramount and clear in a, in a strange new way. It's super important so that the devil does not get his way by utilizing conflict between Christians to sow ungodly disunity among the family of God, which only ever reaps the harvest of dishonor to God's name. Have you realized the significance and the importance of that? The devil's aims, or Paul puts it here, his schemes, and I think that's a better word. It's got that nefarious edge to it, hasn't it? The devil's scheme, as Paul puts it, is to use conflict among Christians to underline the joy of Christian unity, to undermine the effectiveness of gospel ministry, to ultimately undermine the glory of God himself. Don't be unaware of that, friends. Don't be dismissive of this, brothers and sisters. And though there's no promise here that you'll never experience genuine conflict with your Christian family, there is the strong encouragement and the clear principle of being willing to forgive between Christians as ones who have first been forgiven. Don't be unaware. Take hold of that, friends. Now, this is a funny one because it's not hard to understand or apply to our, sorry, it's not hard to apply to ourselves, but it's super hard to apply to ourselves. <laughs> what I mean by that, it's not hard to understand in theory how this is supposed to work. It's just incredibly hard to do. Have you found that with most of Christianity, by the way? <laughs> Christianity, Christianity is impossible, but for the grace of God and the Spirit working in people. So this is not hard to understand. It's just super hard to apply. 
And Christian conflict is often so difficult and uncomfortable precisely because of Christian unity, precisely because we have the Spirit uniting us through Jesus. It's why it can hurt and confuse and affect us so profoundly because it's so antithetical to the joy and the unity of being brought into God's family. It's working against the grain. It's pulling against itself. So my encouragement, friends, to you is so much as it depends on you, In times of conflict and difficult relationships, whether they be with Christian brothers or sisters or anyone else for that matter, make every effort to be emitting these odours. Transparency, sincerity of care and forgiveness, lest your joy be hampered and your Lord dishonoured. Which actually leads me on to the last point from the text, which really is the kicker that ties this all together in terms of genuine Christian aromacology. In fact, if this pheromone is missing, it's not actually the fragrance of Christian friendship at all. I wonder if you noticed what it was. You should have. I said at the very beginning, that final pheromone of Christian friendship is Christ himself. Where do we see it in the text? Have a look at chapter 2, verses 14 and 16. Paul says this, But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one we are the aroma that brings death, to the other an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Once again, so much more in here than there's time to unpack, but a couple of things that I want to highlight to you. Did you notice here that Paul links the aroma of Christ to the spreading of the knowledge of Christ in verse 14? Those two things are linked. That's what it means to spread the aroma of Christ, is to spread the knowledge of him. And notice that this aroma of Christ has two distinct receptions in the nose of the individual smellers, did we go for? Sniffers? I can't remember. Whatever word we went for, for the people that are sniffing it. Two distinct receptions. And in fact, the reception or the response is actually what it says more about the sniffer than the sniffee. Man, that is a really weird thing to say. But anyways, let me say it another way. If you're a Christian here, what I want you to see here is is that not only are you called to be transparent and caring and sincere and forgiving in your relationships, but you're also called at all times to be spreading the aroma of Christ, which is to be making him known, to be pointing through people to Jesus through your actions and interactions. In fact, Paul will say in a couple of chapters' times, he will talk about being ambassadors for Christ, being his representatives. That's what it is to spread the aroma of him, to make it plain that it's because of Jesus in your life that you're able and willing to be transparent and caring and sincere and forgiving, that he's at the basis and the bedrock of those things. And that that sounds and smells fine, but you notice there's a hard part here. It's a really hard part. Don't miss this. It's that living as a Christian and stinking it up for Jesus will elicit one of two responses in the people around you. Verse 16, it will either be life to some, it will smell like death to others. It's the same smell. Do you notice that? It's the same smell. It's the aroma of Christ and it will smell like life or it will smell like death. In the context of the passage here, Paul is trying to help the Christians determine the reception of him and the gospel he's preached among them. Basically, he's trying to help them see, am I a rat? Or is it genuine friendship that you're smelling? 
Are you smelling life leading to life in the gospel that of Christ that Paul has preached? Or does it smell like death leading to death? And clearly from verse 17, he is trying to help them realize that his friendship with them is a genuine Christian friendship that ought to smell like life leading to life. Because as verse 17 says, he's not trying to swindle them for money. Instead, he's spoken and acted towards them with sincerity as one sent from God for their good now and in eternity. This is friendship that you smell, folks, even when it's hard. But the application or the implication, if you like, for us on this last point, it's the same yet with a distinctive edge. So if you're here today and you're already a Christian, my question to you and the question you need to ask yourself is, what does your life smell like? What is the fragrance of your friendship, both to your Christian brothers and sisters and towards your friends and family who don't yet know or trust Jesus? Does your friendship emit the odour of Christ? That is, is it shaped not just by transparency and sincerity and care and forgiveness, but is it shaped by an active desire to spread the knowledge of Christ also? It must. It must, regardless of the reception it receives. The fragrance of your friendship must be centred around the spreading of the aroma of Christ. And what I mean by that is... Make sure people smell Jesus on you. And don't try and, oh, that that is the Jesus of history rather, the Jesus of the Bible, not the airbrushed, sanitized, domesticated version of Jesus in the modern PC acceptable standards. I'm talking the real Jesus. Make sure they smell the real Jesus in your speech and in your action. And don't try and change the fragrance if they smell death at first. Now, this is so important, folks, and so important for us to get as Christians. It's the biggest problem of liberal, uh, liberal, uh, sorry, liberalism in Christianity. It's the temptation to change the content of the gospel because it's not always well received. Do you understand the temptation here? Because it's not all well re- always well received, oh, maybe I need to just shift that a little bit, soften that a little bit, smooth that out a little bit airbrush domesticate jesus is now a little dog that i carry in a handbag rather than the the god of revelation 21 who comes with a robe dipped in blood and and a tongue made of a sword (laughs) don't succumb to the temptation to change the content of the gospel because it's not always well received in fact be prepared for that in advance some people will smell jesus on you That is, they will hear his words and his instructions and his authority and they will revile at it. Some people's first reaction to the gospel will be, that smells like death because it is the smell of dying to your own desires. It is the smell of dying to your own ways. It is the smell of dying to your own wisdom. But in that and through Jesus comes the smell of life leading to life as people realize that submission to Jesus as Lord and Saviour is the greatest gift and reality possible and the only way to life everlasting. One smell gives way to the other. So don't be tempted to change the aroma of Christ. Don't water down the gospel, even if it receives a poor reception at first to your non-Christian friends. Instead, pray that God by his spirit would change the reception of that aroma of Christ so they come to smell life leading to life. And can I say, in the seasons, while that's really hard, and it is often if you've got friends and family who, who smell it on you and they don't like it, <laughs> it's really hard in that season. But I want to say, be a person of integrity. 
Be a person who's giving off a different fragrance from the world so that when and if God chooses to change their perception of that smell, they'll know who to come to to find out how to understand and apply this strange new stink. It's the big take-home for you if you're a Christian here today, folks. What do you smell like? Make sure it's Jesus. In all your relationships, in all your interactions, regardless of the reception. But if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, then I want to ask you just another very simple question. In fact, I want to encourage you to take another whiff. (laughs) Do you know the aroma of Christ? Have you perceived the distinctive notes of the Christian gospel, of the call to die to yourself, of the call to die to your own desires, to your own wisdom, and instead the call, in fact, I don't know, it's not even the call, the command to submit and live for Christ. Have you heard that? And does it smell like life or death to you? Does it smell like the sweet smell to your senses, like a new baby, that new baby smell? Or does it smell offensive to your sensibilities like a rotting corpse? See, my encouragement to you is keep on sniffing and ask that God would reveal the sweetness of the scent of Jesus, of life leading to eternal life that's only found in him. So sniff out a Christian, metaphorically. Smell out a Christian. Ask them, dig in with them, pray with them. In fact, let's pray as we finish up together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have made us creaturely with five senses and we ask that this morning that you would redeem our gift of smell first that we would be people who as followers of you would be emitting the aroma of christ and that because of your spirit working in the nose of the of the the smellers that it would be life leading to life not death leading to death and father we know that we are not capable of this task but by your spirit and so we ask that you will be working in us and on us and through us for your glory and for the good of many. In Jesus' name, amen.